Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. I'm Kim Aquaviva. Today's episode, The Long Walk, featuring Adam Hill. Hi, welcome to MDASH. Hey, how are you? Doing good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. So I wanted to start by having you introduce yourself. Uh, what name do you want to be called? What pronouns do you use? And what identities do you carry with you? Yeah, so um, my name is Adam B. Hill, and um, I um, pronouns are he and him. Um, I identify myself in many different ways. Um, one up front and first and foremost is a, a human being and um, a husband and father and son and brother. I um, also carry the identities of a man in substance use recovery and uh, somebody with a history of, of mental health conditions. And those have become a, a part of my identity and ones that I'm proud to carry. Well, I'm so happy to have you on the show. I've been following you on Twitter forever and uh, just have always wanted to have a chance to chat with you. You are in the unique position, and not unique in that you're the only one in that position, but there aren't many people that, are, that talk about it openly about both being a healthcare provider and a consumer of healthcare uh, as someone who has a substance use disorder and is in recovery. So I was curious about what it's like to be on the receiving end of healthcare and seeking help while also being a healthcare provider yourself. Yeah, I think it's, you know, going through these different phases in my life and, uh, you know, early on in my career is what really coincided with my own mental health recovery. And um, at that time, I was still finding my footing of who I would be in this professional role and what it means to be a healer or a caregiver, um, a medical professional. And and I was blessed to concurrently have, you know, my own story of, of needing help and assistance and, and, and really uh, suffering from multiple medical conditions, including anxiety and depression, as well as, as you know, um, alcohol um, abuse. And so for me, it, it really in this later chapter of my life, the last four plus years of being really open about that is given me this whole new perspective of being able to, you know, hopefully put myself a little bit in other people's shoes, but to empathize deeper, to feel deeper, to have more empathy and compassion for other people, and really to take the time to delve deeper into everybody's human story. Um, and so it, it's really, to me, been eye-opening and uh, a privilege to, you know, to serve in this role as a as a doctor, but one with lived experience. Was it hard deciding to ask for help, knowing that you also were a physician? Um, and what kind of worries did you have when you were thinking about seeking help? You know, it was. The truth is, in the midst of active addiction for me was a lot of denial and a lot of isolation, um, a lot of pent up anger and resentment for other people. And so 
you know, when people ask me about asking for help, I didn't really ask um, other people raise their voices for me, which was, you know, um, something that uh, I'm blessed and privileged to have family members who care deep enough to to reach out when I didn't know that I needed the help. Um, and so I, I really, in the beginning, it was my wife, my uh, mainly, but then my parents and my sister, who really helped me to see that that I needed the help. Um, and at the time, you know, I I really wanted to to feel better, to do right by them, to uh, to reclaim my life, and I didn't know where the rest of the story would evolve or which path this would take me down uh, into professional advocacy. And um, but at the at the time, I just really relied on on other people helping me to make that first step. Were you worried at all about how your own recovery or your substance use disorder, more so than the recovery, might impact your ability to continue serving as a physician? And when, how did the healthcare professionals either allay those fears or, or make them worse? Yeah. You know, in the, in the immediacy of the first days or weeks of, of recovery, uh, it, it wasn't heavily on my mind. I, I soon recognized that I needed the help and I just, I needed to reclaim my life first. I wasn't even thinking about a professional career, but then weeks and then months into recovery when I started looking at, you know, cause I took a few months off from work to seek active treatment. And when I started to um, conceptualize returning to the workforce, that's when some of the fears and some of the real tangible worries um, came about. And, and some of those were just, you know, open conversations about what it'll mean for signing your name to credentialing paperwork that says you've been in addiction treatment or, you know, what sort of jobs may be available or not available to you for disclosing those things. And I write about in, in my book, one of the most salient events was going to a family practice doc and and really sharing, you know, I've been severely depressed. I think I need to be on medication for depression, anxiety, and I have, I'm in early recovery. Um, and the first thing that I was told by that family practice doc was, are you sure you want to openly disclose this? Mm. And it was that, you know, immediate stigmatization and immediate just repudiation of like this open disclosure that I had it really made me sort of retreat back into myself and say, like, am I doing something wrong? Should I not be open and honest and vulnerable and and sharing uh, these medical conditions? And so for years that stuck with me that, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't disclose this. I shouldn't talk openly about it. That there will be limitations to my career or professional ramifications. And so for for several years of early recovery, I, it just added to the shame. It added to the weight and the, you know, just enveloping blanket of guilt um, that I surrounded myself uh, for many years. And uh, it took me a long time before I could shake off that cloak of shame. And it's it, it's striking as you're telling that story that the the stigma is around seeking help more so than having a problem. It, you know, it's it's the act of reaching out that ends up stigmatized, but there are so many healthcare professionals with substance use disorders. How do you think we ended up here with 
you know, when people are looking at credentialing and, you know, filling out paperwork, how did we end up at a place where the thing that's stigmatized is seeking and receiving help? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's a complex and convoluted answer to that. And one is this, you know, fallacy that we've built around um, medicine and our own perfectionism and just resilience and how we're put up on a pedestal and the healers are the ones, you know, that um, are sought after and to, to help other people and that we shouldn't have our own flaws or or our own limitations or, or setbacks. And so I think that there's this ideal that's been painted up culturally for some time, but but even driven more than that in the last 20, 30 years has been more of the big business model of medicine and just fear of litigation. And this is rightfully so empowered of patient safety advocacy policies that have put that at the forefront and pitted it against individual people's mental health. And we see the sensationalization of that all the time in media and how we cover mental health and suicide and addiction and the criminalization of those things, but also just the, you know, the stereotype of mental illness, crazed gunmen or mm-hmm. wars, you know, inpatient psych ward and all these just in, in, in movies and in literature and, and just in the mass consumption media that we live in, that it's just painted this picture of it's, you know, patient safety, fear of litigation versus like, the insane or in, unwell uh, medical professional, and and it's clashed into and and the data just doesn't reflect that. The data, you know, shows that um, individuals who seek help often and are in therapeutic relationships or in recovery programs are some of the safest, healthiest practitioners in the medical workforce, and 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 yet, you know, instead we've had this punishment culture of, hey, if we can seek out and identify who's had a medical condition, then maybe we will prevent, you know, medical errors in our institution. And and the exact opposite has been true. And we've seen that, that when you try to seek out a, a, a punishment culture, then people just retreat and don't disclose and don't seek help and treatment and work sicker and sicker. Um, and then you do really create a workforce that's a, an unwell culture. And mm-hmm. And, and I don't, you know, this isn't unique to medicine. We see it in, in school teachers and, and lawyers and, you know, veterinarians. We see it in pilots and the military. Um, and, but those, those fear-based cultures are, are counterproductive to, to seeking proactive mental health treatment. It's one of the things that I've always appreciated about following you on Twitter is that you are open about being in recovery. And I long ago made a decision that I would always be open about the fact that I take antidepressants, that I had, you know, had taken an overdose when I was 15. I'm really, really lucky to be here today. But I'm always shocked at how few people do share about their own histories. And it it seems to help. I think it helps normalize it if we talk about it a little bit more. I'm teaching a class right now, a health policy class. And I, I always ask students, and it's online, I ask students, tell me three things that you're juggling right now um, in our week one. And usually people say, you know, I'm busy, I've got this, I've got that. Um, but with the pandemic, the things that people are sharing is way deeper. And these are graduate nursing students. And a student just shared 
that they realize that they have a problem with alcohol and they have stopped drinking and they went to their first AA meeting. And I was so excited to see a student share that. And this is a, you know, a student, it's the very beginning of the semester. But I, but as I saw that, I thought, how rare is that? You know, that someone will take that risk and put themselves out there. What can we do to help make healthcare professionals be more comfortable talking about this without the stigma? Yeah, thank you for sh sharing that. And I think, you know, leading by example and just what you've shared and part of your own story, but then to really that creates spaces, I think, in, in nursing schools and residency programs and, you know, and, um, and dental school and, and hospitals at large um, silos of safe spaces to be able to share our own unique human experiences so that we can break down that stigma and say, you know, especially now in this time and place where, you know, we're all feeling this weight of uh, isolationism and emotional exhaustion and angst and just uh, the turmoil of, of, of this year that we, we need to normalize, um, you know, having having medical conditions of mm -hmm. ones that are, um, you know, often often stigmatized. And so I, I think my probably the the greatest lesson that I've learned in the last four and a half years is that you can't just soapbox platform tell people that hey you need to go to therapy or you know or screen people for their depression and anxiety you have to show people that it's okay um, you know to seek that help and treatment and live by example and hopefully create a leadership culture and structure that shows that some of the highest people in your organizations um, aren't afraid to share that they've been on Zoloft or mm -hmm. share that they do therapy once a week. And, and so that's what, you know, my, my platform partially on, on Twitter is about, but definitely in the spaces I work in every day is, you know, putting my therapy sessions on my Outlook calendar that everybody can see. And, you know, Monday afternoons I go to therapy or, you know, talking openly about that so that it creates this culture of, um, you know, not telling people what to do, but inviting people into that conversation. I, I like I like that you frame it that way, that it's not about telling people what to do, but you're you're helping make it safe for people to follow your example if they if they want to seek out help. Um, I share all the time when healthcare professionals share that they're struggling with depression. You know, I always jump in there and 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 try to normalize it as best I can. I've been on Zoloft since college. It is the reason that I'm walking around like a relatively healthy human being. And uh, I wish more people would, would be as open as you are about sharing that. Cause I think about when I was, when I was younger, you know, it would have been so nice to know more people out there to see role models, people who are successful and happy and, uh, and see that, that it's okay to get help. So I wanted to ask you, how are you doing during the pandemic? And I'm gonna lead off by saying, so I am someone who struggles with depression, ADHD, trapped in a house for the last six months with my 20 year old son who has ADD, OCD and Tourette's. And so it is a good time here in our, in our house. Yeah. Um, well, how are you doing? How are you managing? You know, uh, it's, I appreciate you asking. Um, 
I've had this collision of a few things that have really balanced out how I work through the day to day. One is that I'm actually a really introverted person and <laughs> I, I like to, to be alone and to have, you know, time to, um, you know, away from other people and just um, so part of this pandemic and being able to have some more flexibility and work schedule and work a little bit more remotely and not have as many, you know, obligations for dinner meetings or, you know, face-to-face -face things has actually counterbalanced for me in somewhat of a productive way that, um, that I like. And, and it's also given me the opportunity to be more flexible with my schedule, to work out more and to, to balance some of the coping skills that, that I uh, have. And I was, my wife and I were talking yesterday. I'm actually physically in the best shape of my life. <laughs> in 20, That's awesome. In 2020, we, you know, we have weights and a, a treadmill in our basement and, and so, and we protect each other. So we have time and space to work out. And, and so I'm also having somewhat of a midlife crisis this year. I'll be 40 this year. So I'm also, you know, really focused on uh, that and my health. So, so those things, um, have actually helped me to stay relatively balanced. But the truth in in all of that is it's been it's been really hard. And you know we have a five month old baby at home. Uh, we just adopted a rescue puppy, which was an impulse decision. And so we have a, you know a baby who still doesn't sleep. Two toddlers who are very much in the throes of uh, their tantrums and just adjusting to being back in a a school environment, uh, of a daycare environment, um, and just a lot of, you know, emotions in our house and sleep deprivation. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's been, it's been stressful and we, we have our ups and, and down days and weeks. I was, I mean, I posted on Twitter this morning. I was just, uh, this morning woke up in one of those, like, wow, I'm not really doing anything very well. Uh, right, right now, you know, and now as the day has evolved, I've been able to reframe those things. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I've realized that we're in this disillusioned part of this pandemic that's now this chronicity of a, you know, of a marathon that we have to navigate. And seven months in um, to what maybe, you know, another year is, uh, we're having my wife and I both having to reshift our focus and, and the, it's a weird time. It is legitimately so weird. You know, I was, I, I was walking in our neighborhood last night with my, my wife and our dogs and, and kids. And I walked by a house in our neighborhood that still has one of these, you know, a hero lives here, um, signs up, up in the front yard. And it's one of my neighbors who's a nurse and, and I was reflecting on, you know, how powerful and beautiful that still is, but like how nobody cares, right? you know, about that. And, and three houses before I walked past our neighbor and we have one of these signs in our yard too of, of Black Lives Matter and, you know, science matters and a sign. And I'm just like walking by these consecutively in these stream of houses in our neighborhood and saying, you know, uh, the, the collective like, um, it just feels like um, these, these moments that like, you know, people move or the culture moves on past, right? 
like that are so deep and need so much time and investment and energy and structural change. Um, and yet I think we just move on and like, okay, you know, right. on to the next week in, in September. And um, it was just really striking to me seeing, seeing that these really billboard uh, um, signs of that and as almost landmarks of, you know, what the last few months have been. And, it's it definitely feels dispiriting. I I found myself like struggling to figure out some way of feeling like life was normal-ish. And so I impulse bought a little free library and then put it in my side yard. And then my son made fun of me because he thought this was the stupidest thing ever, but I was like, I should totally put in a fairy garden. And he's like, "Why?" Like, I don't know. I just I like the idea of a child walking by and being surprised to see a little door at the bottom of the tree. Like, mm. cause at this point, the idea of anyone being able to look around the world with a sense of wonder and not cynicism, that just fired me up. And so we have little doors at the base of our trees next to our house. It's the weirdest little thing. And, uh, and the little free library. But the other day, there was a little girl on a scooter who was going by and walking by with her parents and her parents called out to me and they were like we just want you to know like our daughter looks forward to looking at the fairy garden every time she goes for a walk and i was like oh it made my whole week because i'm definitely feeling more cynical like it feels like every major important thing that our country needs to focus on people are just you know gets a day of attention and then we move on and the idea of a child being able to have a sense of wonder and looking forward to something. I don't know. I just, I needed it. Um, Cause it just, it feels so strange and being cooped up. I mean, it's funny thinking about managing mental health. I literally said to my son earlier today, um, we need to like, you can't, pardon my French, we can't lose your shit now. We need to pencil this in for five, like after five o'clock because he has so much stuff to do and so do I. And he was like, totally, yes, five o'clock, I'm gonna lose my shit. And so it was like planning for when you can just have a meltdown. Um, and that's, I think, been kind of a nice, that's been an upside of the pandemic, like being able to be home and spend some time with him and talk about managing mental health. Um, you know, as adult to adult. So, so good has come out of the pandemic as well for us. Yeah. Well, I, I love the, the fairy garden story. That's, <laughs> and that's amazing. And I, I think you're right. Like just these, these little anchor moments of just joy or wonder or um, things to look forward to uh, like that are, are so powerful in that story. And, and I've, we may have a fairy garden by the end of the week now. <laughs> it's fun yeah it's really fun. there's something incredibly zen like i i mean it sounds so silly but you know i have these little painted doors and some are red and some are yellow and i didn't want to nail them to the tree because it could hurt the tree so i just like lean them up against the tree and then i like the actual dialogue in my head was like if i don't fasten it to the tree Will someone take the door and mm -hmm. then i was like oh my god if a child steals a fairy door fine like it's a fairy door it's for children and the fairy doors are still there everything is fine um you know people take books from the library and return books to the library uh 
and it's just been it's been fun it's not something i normally would have done like if someone told me two years ago that i would put a fairy garden in the side of my house i would have been like you're insane there's no no there's no universe in which that would happen unless i'm having a breakdown <laughs> but i i absolutely love the fairy garden i love it and and you're right too like my my wife and i have found you know some silver linings and just our ability to communicate about where we are emotionally and you know and and communicate amongst our and you know in between ourselves but also with our kids about you know emotional dysregulation and just that it's okay to to feel anxious or worried or you know they they changed uh, schools in the midst of all this because their one was closed down for four months and we both work in healthcare and so but just trying to just have spaces that we've been able to talk about more as a family um, and our bonds through that have, have grown and that's been one of the silver linings for sure. Yeah, it's not all been bad. I'm painfully introverted. If I make plans, I'm highly likely to cancel them if it involves going outside the house, just because I don't get my energy from that. Me too. So it has been, I've enjoyed that piece of it. Um, and also not waking up at like the most ridiculous hour. So I used to wake up at four to go walk before work. Mm. And now I can wake up at like 5.30 to go walk before work. And that's definitely made a difference, um, you know, just in terms of my, my energy level. And I think the other thing that's been interesting for us is it wasn't until the pandemic that it hit both my son and I that he went back to school like two weeks after my wife died. And so he was back up at college, you know, doing school, doing school, doing school. We haven't had any time where he could actually like grieve and I could grieve and we'd be in the house together. And so that's actually been an unexpected gift of, um, you know, being able to spend time together and also being deeply appreciative that, which sounds horrible. I'm so grateful that my wife died before the pandemic mm because uh, she'd been in recovery for 18 years by the time she got sober, like the second week we were dating. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this would have, the pandemic would have stressed her out so much um, and just been exhausting. So I definitely have gratitude that the universe kind of unfolded in the way that it did because she would have been miserable. Yeah, and, and I think that you alluded to like, really powerfully that holding joy and gratitude and you know all of the shit yep <laughs> at the same time and that we have to hold space for both and there feels like this pushback against sharing joy or sharing sides mm -hmm. or sharing the silver lining because you know the world is literally on fire it, <laughs> you know and and so you know i think as an empath myself you know i have to hold both those spaces because i come into work and have the privilege of guiding families through what may be you know um a child who may be close to the end of their life and 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 i find great meaning and purpose and and impact in doing so and but those are really emotional spaces to hold and then to come back at home and and sit in you know, the, the turmoil of the country or the forest fire mm -hmm. or, you know, all the systemic racism that, you know, is coming to light um, now or just the upcoming elections and everything else. Like I have to have a space 
to celebrate joy um, in, in the midst of all of that to, to balance. And, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't, you shouldn't, none of us should have to like put an asterisk by that or get, you know, ask for permission to, to celebrate um, that there are still really beautiful things happening in our own human lives every single day. Oh, I totally agree. I, I absolutely agree. I think we have to we have to find joy in the crappiest situations. And I've, for me, I've always found seeking out joy and humor in even the crappiest situation makes crappy situations a lot less crappy. So, um, so I think that that you know, for me, that's a coping skill. So you do pediatric palliative care, and I wanted to ask. How has being a pediatric palliative care provider impacted how you, or or has it impacted how you interact with healthcare professionals when it comes to your own kids? When you're on the parent side of the equation with a child, has it changed? Have your experiences as a healthcare professional changed that, or shaped it, or since becoming a parent myself? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I just as I sort of envision in my mind this clear, like, you know, path in, in the woods of sort of pre-recovery medical professional and post-recovery, I, I see my professional career in the same way as, um, you know, those years before I had children and being able to walk in this space every day where I have the privilege of, of helping families um navigate some really difficult times. And, you know, so for me, um, initially it was harder to be able to do this work on a daily basis. I, you know, I write about in, in my book, this, this patient named Luke and, um, have permission from his family. And I still stay in touch with him today to, to, to actually share his, his name, um, who died of a brain tumor who I, um, got really close with over, over the year that I took care of them. And, um, and I just remember having this very powerful conversation. I was talking to them on the phone in the minutes uh, that he died and I was helping them navigate his end of life care. And they were actually in a hotel in Florida where they wanted to be, you know, away from, uh, from Indiana, but doing that at like the end of a work day for 45 minutes and having this just, visceral gut reaction as I hung up the phone of like, how do you go home to your family or to your own kids at the end of the day after, you know, walking a family through losing their, their young child themselves and drove home through tears and pulling the, the driveway. And my son, it was a toddler, you know, at the, at the time greets me with my wife holding him and I just like collapse on the floor and just, you know, fall down. And it was just this, this odd feeling of just immense gratitude for the love of my life and my, my health and my children's health and being able to kiss my son and hold him and just grief and loss, you know, and sadness um, and guilt for this family who had just lost their child. And, and it, it's taken me years to learn how to how to balance that and to really give myself fully and compassionately and empathically to another person and yet 
be able to pull myself back out of that on a daily basis so that I can sit at the kitchen table and eat dinner uh, and be present and show up, you know, for my own family. And, um, and that's still part of my, you know, my journey and, and part of my recovery story is how learning how to do that and balance that on a daily basis. So when you think about your future, you know, looking out into the future, what things do you hope that the 70 year old you will feel proudest of looking back on their life? You know, um, it's odd thinking um, that far for me in the future. I, you know, come from a place not that long ago, less than a decade ago, where I was actively contemplating and planning the end of my life and have spent years really living in the moment and being thankful and appreciative for the day and and just even looking back over this last decade of where this journey of recovery has taken me professionally and personally and to three kids and a happy marriage and you know promotions and you know job opportunities that I never would have dreamed of thinking ahead um, it, it has been this just new chapter honestly in this last six months or or year of my life because um, I've just been so focused on uh, on the journey which I think is a powerful thing so you know I in in terms of you know, 30 years from now or looking back, I, I, I really, you know, I write my story. I wrote this book. I write openly about my own addiction recovery so that I hope that my kids and my grandkids one day will look back at somebody who had principles and, um, and values and, and, um, was, was proud of, of, who he was and the parts of his story that any of us can have as uh, parts of our human lived experience and um, so that it can normalize it for them that if they're ever struggling with addiction or, or mental health then um, then they'll know that it's okay to, to seek help and, and treatment and so you know I don't think too much about where my professional career will go as much as I just think more about being the best father and role model and example that I can can be for them and um, and not take it for granted knowing that you know I'm just as close today as I was back then to my next drink and that I can lose all of this recovery um, if I'm not diligent and don't keep it as the number one focus in my life so um, so I hope to do that to the best of my ability, just to live authentically and live who I am and live openly and maybe create a little bit of vulnerability along the way that allows other people to be uniquely them as well. Beautifully said. Where can people find you on Twitter? So my Twitter handle is AdamHill1212, which... Uh, a pre-existing Twitter handle before I wrote the book so it's not like a, or even before I had a professional account so uh, not the easiest one to find but that's it um, I do have a website as well adambhillmd.com and uh, 
and you can also pick up the book Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery, really anywhere books are sold. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show, and thank you for continuing to be authentically you and vulnerable on social media, but also on this episode. I really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure to talk to you today, and look, have fun with the fairy garden. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For more information about our podcast, visit www.em-podcast.com. Dash hyphen podcast dot com.